Hello and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I appreciate you checking this one out. I wanted to talk to you guys today, I think for, um, what is today? The 12th of June, 2020. A lot, of, a lot of stuff going on right now in the world, but uh, I talked a little bit about the ideas around media that I had around that uh, in the last podcast that I recorded. This one I was going to get into uh, a little bit of the outdoor stuff that I've been up to and some of the photo editing bits that I was on. And, uh, and also I wanted to talk a little bit more about editing with a, a, a controller board. Uh, what is it called? I don't know. A, uh, yeah, like a MIDI controller. Uh, so uh, yeah, the first parts I guess I wanted to talk about were heading out to the, the wildlife refuge area that's uh, out south of Corvallis here, the Finley Wildlife Refuge. Uh, went out there for a couple days in a row to try and check out some, some of the area out there. I think it's now opened up a little bit more officially. I think during the first weeks of the lockdown here in Oregon, the uh, the road to that was gated up. I think almost for like two months, the the road that cut through to the main section of the wildlife refuge had been boarded up, or not boarded up, but uh, I think there's like a, a gate that cuts across the front entrance of it. Even though it's it's really sort of a, a public road that sort of that cuts through to the the highway on the other side. I think it goes from from Bell Fountain Road over to Highway 99 on the other side. So you can cut all the way through, but they yeah, they clo- closed off both ends, I think, because there's a, a visitor center in the in the middle there, and they didn't want people coming in and congregating or, or I guess, uh, traveling on the trails for a period of time. Um, so, yeah, and I noticed that on a, a couple other spots, a couple of the entrances, they said uh, that maybe, I think, that you couldn't enter for a while. Then they sort of shifted those regulations around, like we, I think, kind of talked about on a couple of the previous podcasts. And uh, and then you could walk, but then you had to remain socially distanced and, and the rest of it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's opened, uh, it's opened back up mostly now, uh, and has been for the last few weeks. Normally, I think the, the wildlife refuges in this area open up on April 1st and then close down again on November 1st. And I think that's for migratory bird uh i guess seasonal patterns that they that they're in so i think it's for i think it's an area for canadian geese to come in uh and winter in if that sounds right is that for, i guess that's far enough south um it's loaded up there in the winter time it's loaded with birds and cranes and egrets and stuff it's really cool to to go down there and uh, and take some binoculars and look around a lot of eagles late in the winter i think uh that was pretty cool during like February and in March of this year, there were a lot of bald eagles out in that area, the Willamette Valley, uh, just sort of roaming around. That was pretty fun to see. A lot of hawks too. That was really cool. Uh, so yeah, a lot of birds in that area, but I cruised down there this uh, last week for a couple trips to kind of uh, hike out to a few spots now that it's a little more opened up and you can kind of travel through. And it's nice. It's really close to the the area around here and it's it's a little more opened up that's one thing i was noticing as i was looking for a few areas that were a little more opened up as a meadow and not as uh as a tightly constricted of a forest area well, i'll talk about a few of those places next too but uh th- this area is really cool though the uh the willamette valley area just or really probably a lot of western oregon in total uh this time of year for the last couple weeks of may and the first couple weeks of june uh, there's still so much water and rain 
and sun in the area as it uh, as it's coming down that we really get a lot of flowering plants this time of year and then later into july well even even by the, the end of june and then as you go into july for sure in august it, it just gets so dry that there's there's really no more wild flowering plants out on the hillsides and in the meadows and so that's what's really cool about right now is you can go out into a meadow and you're, you're going into pretty tall grass because the grass is growing really tall as well right now and going to seed and then there's a lot of um, different types of what is it like milkweed that has the white flowers that grow on it there's another type of kind of thistly weed that grows yellow flowers and then there's just additionally like a bunch of uh, cool stretches of fields of wildflowers that are out there that kind of grow interspersed to across um, across these fields uh, and specifically i think i photographed them before talked about it probably every year the uh, the foxglove are in bloom this time of year which is really cool so you can go around uh, to just about any hillside in oregon and you're going to see these really cool stalks of the stock with this you know kind of clumped pattern of bright purple magenta flowers that are sort of butted off of it and you'll see them everywhere in in this part of Oregon for sure. I mean, gosh, like anywhere from, I think it would be like Roseburg to Seattle probably. I don't know, I don't know if it goes that far, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if I really saw them a lot in Southern Oregon, uh, just wild on the hillsides during the summertime. There's, there's probably a bit out there right now, but really uh, this, this area of the Willamette Valley and up into parts of the Cascades before it gets too high in elevation, you see a lot of that out there anywhere that there seem to be uh, like uh, logging activity you know where there's uh, there's some down trees there's a uh, open field of grass w you know it kind of interspersed and then uh, and it and some sunlight that's able to get through to the the bottom of the forest floor that seems like there's these uh, these rows of foxglove that kind of come in maybe they were invasive I'm not sure how they they really came through I mean, they must have been like tracked in somewhere. I see them. I see them spilled out by roadsides all over. Uh, so it makes me wonder sometimes. But uh, but yeah, beautiful flowers, really cool. And uh, and the way that they bloom for probably the next three weeks is is really one of the the natural highlights of of taking photographs in Oregon or or of going out and looking at stuff in Oregon. It's really uh, just one of the uh, nicer bits of the year when you can go out and you can find cool, bright flowers just about anywhere that you kind of head out to. Um, so yeah, I've always appreciated kind of going out and trying to get some photographs of that this time of year. I noticed that a little bit in Oregon specifically, probably anywhere that you photograph stuff, is that there's sort of a seasonality to some things where there's a two-week period of the year where a certain idea is just going to work better than other periods of the year. I know you can travel around and do different things. You can be dynamic, but uh, but, but really kind of thinking of it like, okay, what, what am I offered during this period of time that the year provides me? So, you know, in the wintertime, just kind of obtusely, you could think, uh, well, you get snow in the wintertime, and in the summer you get sun, I guess, or in the fall you get colored leaves, um, which is, I guess that's a, that's a pretty easy one to understand. But even that, you, you kind of get the t into the dynamics of taking photographs in the fall. And if you were to think about the the crisp kind of bright look of early October before everything gets real wet or before the leaves really drop. That's when you're able to get a lot of the, the crisp, uh, like kind of vibrant color and mix of colors where you get like the greens, the oranges, the yellows and the reds uh, sort of spread through 
the different trees in the area. You get that kind of late September, early October. But by November, it's still the fall. You get a lot of stuff that, that just looks like it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of trees that have lost their leaves. And it looks a lot more gray. And there's just kind of a difference in the way that the, the look of it is. Similarly, in a place like this, with uh, its, its four-season base, and it wasn't like this in Hawaii, right? You know, it was almost the same every day, <laughs> to to a fault almost. But uh, similarly, in an area like this where there's uh, changes throughout the year, this time of year, in late May and early June, like I'm talking about, you get these cool blooms of flowers, and that's just a different dynamic than what we're going to see later in the year. You know, I mean, in, I don't know, late July, August, we'll have a bunch of blackberries in bloom or something. Um, and, uh, anyhow. And all through the rest of the year, there's different things. But right now, we get a bunch of Oregon grape, those bright, cool yellow flowers that are spread across the hillsides as you're driving out to the coast. Or, like I was mentioning, the, the foxglove and the wildflowers that are growing. That's all pretty cool. So that's what I was up to, uh, trying to find out at the wildlife refuge. This time of year, there's really not much wildlife out there, as uh, maybe you'd figure. But uh, but I think during this area, this, this season of the summer, a lot of the animals that would naturally be there have headed off for a while. I don't know if it's up to the mountains. I think there's a, a, a good-sized herd of elk that go in and out of the wildlife refuge there. I've seen them a few times. I think maybe I talked about it before on this podcast, but uh, like last, last winter I'd seen them uh, uh, a couple times. But uh, I think I was thinking specifically maybe sometime in November. I think that's near their rut. Though I'm not really sure the dynamics of how elk work, but uh, but yeah, I, I definitely saw a few bulls. You can see, you know, their big racks kind of walking through this uh, open field of a of a wildlife refuge, and then uh, and then yeah, a bunch of the does that were around. Oh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, maybe on one of these uh, podcasts that we were out at the wildlife refuge. Well, yeah, so strike what I said. Almost, I mean, I'm kidding, but uh, we were out at a at a further south section of the same wildlife refuge looking across an open field at dusk, and we saw, um, well, I'm not sure what it was. It, it, it was an elk. It was an elk for sure. But we saw a lone elk maybe 200 yards out uh, across an open field, and it, it just kind of cruised a, a little zigzag as it kind of like went through this field sort of scoping and bending down to chew. And uh, we, we watched it for a while, and, and then we ended up taking off uh, after 45 minutes or something. But uh, but yeah, we were just up there hanging out and, and having like a, a picnic or something, yeah, hanging out. And yeah, this elk popped up and cruised around out there. So I guess that was, what was that, mid-May or so when we, we last saw that. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But yeah, just that, that lone elk. Uh, so he's, he's probably headed up to the hills, I guess, by the time that it's going to get uh, pretty hot out here. I bet the people around there sort of know their, their natural migrations a little bit better. But it's cool. Yeah, you can go out there in the wintertime, see elk. You can see a bunch of birds. Uh, I saw a coyote out there. That was fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of a bunch of animals, a bunch of natural stuff, a bunch of places you can hike around. It's, just, it's cool that we have a couple areas like that that are designated as uh, as wilder or what it's not a wilderness area. It's a, a wildlife refuge. I think there's another one north of here. Uh, well, there's a bunch in Oregon. Really, if you if you uh, if you pull up a map and you look for wildlife refuges, you'll probably find one near and about the area that you live. There's really a lot outside the Portland area. There's a lot, uh, I think, along the I-84 uh, Columbia River corridor. There's a lot, I think, down this way into the Willamette Valley and along the coast. But there's really almost nothing. I was surprised. Uh, there's almost none in southern Oregon, and there's 
a few, but it's 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 pretty dispersed out in Eastern Oregon. It's really, I think, just considered everything in Eastern Oregon's public lands or, you know, like whether it's BLM or, or a national forest or something. So why designated a wildlife area? I think they're supposed to be specifically specifically set aside as view sheds or like specific wildlife habitats that they want to keep intact. And I think a lot of that program was maybe put in place in the 70s and 80s. But I'm not really sure about it. There's, gosh, there's a whole there's a whole breakdown of the history. Well, I mean, a, a breakdown I don't have, but there's a whole breakdown of the history of how different different segments of public lands were kind of attached and then set up. Uh, and so it, they're really not all as old as I might have thought they were. I think I think this one might be back from the maybe 70s or 80s, like I was saying, when they, they finally had it established. And so even still, there's there's like a, a few farms and a few like uh, there's a bunch of buildings and stuff out there already because they had built things before there's ever any public land protections. And so now there's the structures there and you drive through and, it, and it's cool. It's fine. I think I think a lot of it's managed land. So they have like a, a number of fields, like I was mentioning, that the, the elk kind of cruise across. But in the summertime, like right now, they have they have a bunch of tractors down there and they had gone through and plowed or not plowed but uh they had gone through is it a combine they went through and cut the hay they cut the grass that was growing and then they made these giant rolls not bales not those square bales of hay that you would see you know kind of as like a commercial product but these these really huge bales of hay that seemed like about as big as my truck around and as tall as my truck um, and then they stack eight of those up onto a flatbed pick or not a pickup truck, but a flatbed semi truck. And then they have like a double trailer. So they have, well, I don't know, 16 of these uh, big bales. And then they're they're doing runs of that all day to take out this uh, this grass product that they've uh, produced on the land there. And I think that's sort of one of the the multiple use cases for the land management that they do you know where they do this kind of like i was talking about earlier you know you do this this time of year you do this next time of year because uh, it's just it's just what the land and the environment offer you at that time so i was out there the other day yeah, watching these these tractors kind of cruise around and uh, pick up uh, pick up their bales of hay that they had been setting up and then i think after that once that's done as it gets into the drier season in the rest of the year, I think it goes, uh, it just, it just kind of hangs out until the fall. And then, and then that's when the elk come back in and that's when the birds come back in. Uh, so it's cool, uh, going out there and checking out a few spots. I've been enjoying it in the afternoons. That's a, a good spot to kind of head out to. And, uh, it's an easy spot to get to. And you can, you can kind of find like a bunch of open areas where you can kind of focus in on just some real specific singular points. Like, uh, I have this 50 millimeter macro lens on my camera right now. Um, so, Instead of just going out and taking wide-angle, broad landscape photos, which is a nice area for, you can go in and with that macro lens focus in uh, kind of real specifically and tightly onto uh, a cluster of flowers or a grouping of flowers and then, and then kind of pick your angle of view uh, or, well, and kind of pick your, I guess, pick your depth of field and sort of select how... Uh, just how, how you're going to make that image uh, kind of pop or how you're going to get that flower to separate from the, the rest of it. Um, but, yeah, it's fun working with the macro lens because you can get kind of right in there next to it and still keep that object in focus like a, like a flower or a bug or something. 
uh, <laughs> any any I guess kind of a small small detailed item you can move that lens right up next to and I think that, is that because of its uh, what is its minimum focal distance I'm not sure what that was called what is that when it's uh, you know however many centimeters away from the front of the glass of the lens it is until you can first get to something in focus with a lot of lenses like if you tried this with a telephoto lens some telephoto lenses I've had like uh, I think I had an f4 telephoto lens and uh, and you, you couldn't you could not focus that lens in something less than eight feet of distance you had to be like nine feet away before you could get something in focus with that lens uh, with something like a macro lens you can get you know six centimeters away from the lens and you'll still be able to to keep that in focus and I think that's with some of the the dynamics of how the the glass optics are arranged inside the lens I guess I'll leave it there because I'm sure certainly the rest of it is beyond me. But it's kind of cool uh, thinking about uh, some of the macro stuff. So it's cool having it on there, and it's cool getting to go around this time of year because there's, uh, there's like I was mentioning, there's just, there's, you know, there's all these different uh, opportunities to go and kind of arrange these different little bits of flowers and take some photos of them. Um, also, like I was mentioning, yeah, big, big wide open fields and landscapes and stuff. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's not quite a, a full hardy landscape. I want to get out and see some, some real mountains or, you know, get up in the Cascades or something and try and take something a little bit more, a little bit more extreme in the landscape side. But as it goes for a nice mellow field in the evening light of June, it's going pretty good. Taking some photos of foxgloves, fox fields of wildflowers. It's all pretty easy going a uh, bit of time there. So been doing that. I also went up to Coburg Ridge, and uh, I had like a, a pellet gun. Uh, this, uh, you seen that? as like when we were kids and stuff. You know, you had like your BB gun. I got like a like a, a Daisy Red Rider, but there's also like the pellet guns where you put the, not the copper BBs, but those little sort of, uh, I don't know, little, lead kind of parachute tipped pellets right you know and <laughs> so you pop one of those in and uh i had I had a few of those i guess when i was a kid over at my grandparents place we'd go shoot cans and stuff but uh this one that i've got is like a single shot one like a pump action one so i went up it on uh, to coburg ridge uh so i went over to brownsville and then headed out the back way went up uh to coburg ridge and there's a bunch of bunch of different roads that sort of cut off there out into the forest and up in the hills and stuff where you can you can go up to a dead end and uh, people go go shooting up there all the time you know it's interesting during this lockdown and stuff too where there's a bunch of people uh, that aren't able to go back to work but are still trying to occupy their time there's a there's a bunch of people or it seems like uh, you know when you go out to a wilderness area I talked about this a bit before in another podcast but if you go out to a wilderness or a more remote location uh, there should be no one there, right? Because everybody's at work. But as soon as everybody's not at work, there's another 10 people that decided to go out to the middle of nowhere. And once 10 people show up, even though there's a lot of people in Oregon, man, once 10 people show up in the middle of nowhere, it starts to seem crowded. And so uh, <laughs> even on a Tuesday afternoon, if you go up on Coburg Ridge, there's going to be a lot of uh, pullouts and roads and uh, different areas that you'd think maybe would be... Uh, providing more solitude at some point in the past. Now you're going to come around a corner and there's going to be, there's going to be a couple trucks pulled over already into a spot and they're already firing away. <laughs> and, then, and you just see that as you kind of do S turns around uh, uh, the different, uh, around that little forest gravel road as you kind of cruise around in the hills there. Um, so I went out, I found a spot that was cool. It wasn't, you know, 
heavily crowded and stuff. But uh, yeah, set up a little target and stuff, and then uh, was uh, practicing with this uh, this little uh, pump action pellet rifle that I was uh, trying to check out. That was kind of fun. Pellet rifles, cruising around, doing some uh, some target practice stuff. Really, I was trying to get uh, to be, I guess, like a little bit more of a consistent shot at a specific distance. I've heard that before, where like what you want to try and do if you're getting, in, I don't know, if, come on, did you hear me? I'm shooting a pellet gun. But if you're trying to get into some shooting stuff and you want to kind of, uh, I guess, kind of refine your consistency so you can get you can get a good shot, I think the idea was like at 50 yards and then 100 yards, what you wanted to try and do was get uh, a pattern or, you know, get like a, I don't know, probably something in about the size of a dinner plate is what I had heard, where you want to try and get a cluster of shots fired into the space of about a dinner plate. Um, and I guess that's sort of showing that as I'd take a shot, I'd have the consistency to get it into a specific point of a target that's, uh, that's actually selected, even at a range of somewhere around 100 yards. And I think that's part, like, uh, I hear hunters talking about that, like, you're a good shot, but are you a good shot at X range, you know, um, which I think is <laughs> a preliminary element of, of if you're doing any any kind of gun activity, but uh, or if you're actually, like, doing doing some real shooting. But, uh, huh, I don't know. I got to try it more. I haven't been very much of a good shot through the years. I mean, you know, I think, like, the most of the stuff I've done was, like, a BB gun at say 50 feet or something so that's not a lot of yardage to be firing across what i want to try and do is uh i have i have a 22 uh around that was my grandparents or my, my grandfather's and so i want to take that out to eastern oregon or out to even some of the spots that i was at and do some but really i want the range so i want to go out to like eastern oregon and set something up at like 50 and 100 like i'm saying and then um, and then kind of practice on trying to get the, I guess, the distribution of my shot placement into a space that would be about as wide apart as a dinner plate. And then when I can kind of do that, then I guess I'd have the confidence to sort of consider that if I am taking a shot at a target or whatever, I'm not really going to be a hunter, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, if I'm uh, firing at a target at a range, then I know that... Uh, that my shot placement's consistent enough or that you know my, my use of it is consistent enough that it seems like I should be doing it. I hear about that with like archery too, you know, like when, when people are getting into, um, well, I guess uh, bow hunting more specifically, you know, where they want to try and uh, make their shots at 30 yards and then 40 yards more consistent so that if they do take a shot when they're hunting, they have the shot placement and confidence in the shot placement at that range so they can could take a shot and take an animal down, I suppose. Because uh, that's kind of one of the worst things is if uh, if you're outside of that, if you're hunting and you're outside of that, say, dinner, dinner plate-sized target patch, then you'll get a bad hit, they say. And then it won't, uh, it won't be as direct. And then it'll really, I think, generally just cause more suffering as we would <laughs> maybe leave it there in the conversation. But uh, uh, so I don't think that's really anyone's goal as it uh, as. Uh, you know, like when you're out out about. So, um, yeah, it was cool doing some target practice stuff. Trying to get into that with uh, with some of the time that I've had. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit on this podcast, even though I've been going on for a while now, about wedding photography. And I thought that the the wedding photography industry was maybe uh, one of those interesting 
problems that uh, we're, we're going to see uh, kind of continue to spill out over the next months. It seems like with this, with COVID and then with the lockdown and then with the the multi-phase reopening plan that we have, there's going to be a lot of businesses and industries that come back online and a lot of people seem to get back to work uh, with a significant hiccup in the system. But it seems like maybe those industries will come back online and get back to work uh, sort of smoothly. I'm curious about the wedding industry, or the well, the wedding industry, the events industry overall, and then uh, as it sort of trickled down, trickles down the... Uh, the economic pyramid there, how, how does that arrive at wedding photographers? And that's sort of uh, one of the questions that I've, I've been mulling over over the last weeks. I mean, it seems like everybody went through the experience of having any, any booked gigs during the month of April or May uh, just sort of canceled and evaporated uh, <laughs> right, right before everyone's eyes. Um, so I, I, I was curious how that was for any wedding photographers out there. I mean, I, I remember... Uh, there's like a wedding back on like March 6th, and now I think of it, and that just barely snuck under the wire there. And then for the last many months, there's been no public gatherings of that type, and uh, and no you know no events uh, for for that kind of thing. So I was curious, yeah, like man, like what's that going to do to industries where really you just have to have some level of confidence, uh, you know, like market confidence to try and participate in. I was thinking about, yeah, like vacationing or even yeah, a lot of leisure-based stuff. It seems like a, a lot of families uh, are going to be in a position where they've not been working for a period of time. And to some capacity, they're going to be in the hole, you know, I mean, with everybody's mortgage crisis or rent crisis or job crisis or, oh, yeah, I mean, please you know, fill in the list. Um, of what we're going to be experiencing in the next six six months, <laughs> or what it's going to be identified as experience in the next six months, it'll be interesting to kind of go through. As I understand it, like even in places like California, where they're getting into their phase two and then phase three parts of the reopening, I think they they're going to have bars and then nightclubs return, and then I think maybe later into that even is when you're going to get event centers to open back up again. That's more for like like concert venues or sporting event venues, that sort of, sort of thing. Um, but I was interested just kind of more specifically, yeah, like how, how is a wedding venue going to reopen? And I figure kind of given the, the news of some things, it seems like there's just going to be a lot of things that reopen. They're just, oh, well, we're open again. You know, at least in a number of states, it seems like Texas is sort of moving that way. Oklahoma's moving that way. Uh, I don't know, it seems like a lot of those kind of Midwestern and Southern states are, are sort of moving in that direct direction pretty quickly. And really, as even I can say, a lot of places in Oregon, especially this rural area of Oregon, there's there's not many masks. There's not many private business guidelines that you interact with. Uh, so it... There's just not, and, and, and I mean, gosh, like looking at the, the flow of traffic and the number of people out and just how things are, it's, it's really quite a different environment than it was months ago at the beginning of this uh, in March. It seems like a lot of the concern people had about not going out or not interacting or not continuing on with their, um, their more regularly scheduled lives is, is just not going to be interrupted anymore. I think we've, it seems like mentally a lot of people have just selected that it, that the problem has passed. I might be one of those people, um, for, <laughs> for better or worse. 
So, uh, as it goes, yeah, it seems like a lot of stuff is reopening. It seems like events of some type are going to come back into place, but family, ev- like voluntary family events, like weddings, it just seems like, well, I don't know, if, I don't know how those events are going to be rescheduled. Definitely, like uh, a wedding ceremony is a super important part of a person's life, and it just seems like it's going to be a hard year for that to happen and go smoothly, you know. And uh, and kind of specifically for those folks who are in the the industry that's supported by the wedding, uh, the wedding events industry, it's like uh, well, like a lot of DJs, a lot of uh, catering businesses. I'm sure have to wait for those live events to come back before they get a booking to go to a catering event. And then even still, you know, how are people going to be interacting with that sort of stuff? So. Uh, so that's what I was wondering about, yeah, photography, like for family photography, like any family photo gigs I had, like are, are probably evaporated for the next couple months, I'm sure, you know, like when are we going to get, um, I mean, a lot of families that are together, I'm sure are fine, but do they want photos right now? Do they want to spend a significant amount of money after all this stuff has happened? Or, you know, just like the number of people that would have been interested in a uh, sort of a luxury purchase of a, a larger photo package created for them it just seems like well let's not have someone over at our house or let's not go out to somewhere as a family or let's not drop all this money on something that <laughs> we, we don't need anymore um, <laughs> and i bet there's a lot of industries that are going to be kind of suffering from that as uh, we sort of come out of a readjustment from well, what what is it that we need uh, in the 2020s now and what was uh, just sort of a superfluous uh like luxury item that we had in the past it's, uh, that's no longer really necessary. I don't know. Maybe uh, I think a lot of stuff in human nature will just kind of pop back to the way that it, it maybe had been before. Like I was just mentioning, it seems like the season of considering this stuff for a lot of folks has passed. And then for a lot of folks, in addition to that, there's a lot of, a lot of face masks and face shields and uh, distancing behavior going on. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that divergence either comes back together or continues to divide. And it seems like right now we're in we're in a time where things like that just sort of continue to divide. So maybe that's what it'll look like for the next few years. But I'm not sure. I think uh, as it goes, if uh, uh, well, a- as a consumer goes, I think that a lot of consumers will be able to get what they want. If they want to go out to eat, if they want to get married, if they want a photo package, they'll be able to get one. As it goes for the businesses, I think that that's going to be a little bit more concerning where uh, all of those small businesses are going to have to compete for a much smaller whole pie. And that means their slice, I think, is going to be uh, a lot slimmer as well. So maybe it'll, it'll be interesting. I think, uh, I think it'll, be, uh, it'll, it'll be a big dip, but then I think it, it'll probably return, I don't know, maybe in a year or so. Depends on depends, I guess, on like what this second wave stuff goes like. I don't I don't really expect to see any multi generation weddings or family photo events coming around soon. I mean, gosh, like I was doing the family family portrait stuff in Hawaii uh, last year, and that's not going on at all anymore. What are they doing? I mean, I've thought about this a few. It's not the first time I thought about it, but gosh, like yeah, what are these what are those people doing now? The photographers or the hotels or any of that, but uh, and, and additionally the families. When are they coming back? I mean, Hawaii hasn't opened up anything yet. They're still completely locked down. I think they're arresting residents that go outside in the wrong way still. So when is the confidence to go on a, a seven-day trip 
to Hawaii going to pop back in? And then when is that also going to include uh, <laughs> getting a, a hokey photo package with your family? Man. Or, yeah, like inviting your, your elderly grandmother or grandfather to a wedding or something. It just seems like, oh, man, I wonder, are those people just going to be on Skype? Maybe they'll need photos and videos more than ever now. Oh. <laughs> It'll be a multimedia wedding where you're just uh, in an empty room with the bride and groom and pastor, and then it's streamed over Zoom. That's going to be a great future. I don't really s suspect that. I think a lot of people are pretty fatigued by the idea of working with Zoom or working with these video chat services. And really, um, whatever happened to a phone call? I mean, this is audio, isn't it? Are you, are you sad that I cannot be seen right now? I don't know. Maybe so. It seems a little too max headroom for me to just keep uh, looking at someone on a half-second delay. <laughs> it's, I don't, it's always kind of silly. Uh, so I really, I think audio, I think voice, I think sound is a really powerful medium just on its own. And I've always been uh, curious why, you know, like a conference call seemed to work quite well in the 90s. Uh, it doesn't seem like everything has to be uh, a Zoom meeting, which is not an equivalent to face-to-face. -face. Not yet. I think that's a part of latency. I've been trying to learn about this with audio stuff too, and uh, that's uh, what some of the 5G uh, infrastructure is supposed to work on too, is the latency of uh, how long it takes a packet to get made and then sent across the network and delivered, and then how long it takes for a return of that to round trip back to me. And essentially, that's saying, you know, like, wh what's that What's that little chunk of delay that happens on a phone, like on a Skype call where, you know, it's it's not real. It's maybe, uh, I don't know, 900 milliseconds behind where it's, you know, it's just like a tenth of a second or something off. And uh, there's an effect to that. Or just the video motion, too, you know, like if you make a reaction, there's uh, just a, a moment of delay. Maybe you remember this, like on uh, the news feeds when a, a correspondent was at a satellite location, maybe across the earth. And so the, the news anchor would say, like, hey, what are you learning in India? And then it would be, you'd be staring at the image of the reporter waiting to start his report, and you'd count this, like, silent beat of, like, one, two, three, four, five. Say, like, what is it? Why, why has this guy not started talking yet? And then you say, oh, well, yeah, we're here and we're covering this. And then you would think, oh, that, that giant gap, that big delay in the responses is when that person heard it in real time and then started responding. And that big gap that we hear is the round trip delay that it takes for the signal to leave the studio in America, wherever it was, travel to a satellite, bounce around across a few satellites as opposed to the other side of the earth and then bounce down to the ground in India where it makes contact with a producer there at you know wherever this camera guy is on a remote. And then the anchor hears it, speaks, and then it goes through the same process again where it goes up to a satellite, bounces around halfway to around the earth, comes back down to the ground over another satellite, and then is broadcast out over the air. So that whole thing is latency. That whole, the time that it takes that process to occur is latency. And to the degree that we can shrink that or shorten that or uh, use uh, different information tools to make that happen faster, like packet sizing or, I don't know, network forming or some, what is it, packet forming? 
something like that. They're able to make these, uh, these kinds of things a little bit faster. And so I think that's one of the hopes of 5G. And then I've also heard of, um, um, well, no, it's not low latency. I think that's one of the problems with satellite internet. Like one of the hopes was that you could get satellite internet and then get bandwidth anywhere around the earth. But the problem that people would have is high latency. And that's, I think, because the satellite is so much further away than even a cell phone tower like we were talking about. Uh, and the, just kind of the way and the technology that was in, uh, developed for those satellites wasn't, wasn't low latency. Uh, so I think that's what one of the attempts of the uh, Starlink program is. I think you've heard about that. I hate to say Elon Musk's Starlink, but uh, that might be like the easiest way to recognize it. Maybe you've seen the satellites cruising overhead too. I've only seen them a couple times, or what, once? Uh, one night I saw a number of them, which is probably what you would see too. Most of the time they're not there, and then there's a cluster of them. And apparently they're going to be launching somewhere around a 1,000? And they're supposed to cover a grid around the sphere of the Earth. And then what we were talking about is that would create kind of a lower latency satellite network that would allow telecommunications of, of data packets to any location on the Earth. And the hope is that that would have, uh, that would, I guess, provide access to people all around the world to do some type of compute or some type of um, networked data exchange uh, wirelessly anywhere on the earth. You know, so you'd have, you'd, you know, anywhere you don't have cell signal, you'd have signal because it goes to the satellite. Everything's a satellite phone now is what the idea that that project is. So uh, it's getting off the ground. It's getting into space. They've launched maybe 200 satellites now. It seems like they go up with about 50 or 60 every time. I heard they had a launch uh, maybe every month since early March or so. Well, I think there was an, maybe a, there was I think maybe one in January. There's definitely one in March. I think there was one again in May. Um, yeah, so they got a bunch of satellites up. I think it's pretty cool. I think that's what they're doing with some of those uh, those Falcon Nine rockets when they're they're sending them up uh, to do a uh, you know those the SpaceX missions, not the the Dragon capsule that went to the space station, but some of the other ones that they have for uh, for satellite deployment. I think that's what they're doing is deploying some of these. Starlink satellites. I got a panicked, not panicked, but a, uh, an excited phone call from a friend. He said, Billy, look outside. What's this? It's a UFO. We're being invaded. And I looked up and, uh, and yeah, it's a stream of pretty bright satellites or pretty bright objects that are lit moving quick across the sky from the southwest to the northeast. And they're kind of spaced out. Uh, just a little gap between each other. It just seemed like maybe like one or two inches of the of the distance of the sky, you know, like if you grabbed it in your fingers at your arm's length. Um, and there was just these streams of them, yeah, kind of cruising at satellite speed across the sky. It looked like a satellite, but most of the time they don't move in that direction. They don't move that fast. They don't look that color. Uh, so I was like, yeah, what is that? That's cool. And trippy and scary. Or it's like, whoa, like, are we being invaded? I mean, War of the Worlds was just the radio program, and it caused more panic than that. Uh, <laughs> maybe we're, I don't know, I guess we're, we're just more settled into it now. But, uh, but yeah, I got this phone call from my friend and I was thinking about it. I was like, oh yeah, this, this is the Starlink program. This is that, that satellite deployment where they're all clustered together and they're going to be visible for a period of time. And then I think they're going to be, they're kind of spiraling out as they go around the earth. They're sort of getting further and further out in orbit from the earth each time they go until they get to a distance that they're going to sort of remain. 
uh, is my understanding. And so I think they're pretty bright now once they're launched. And then over time, they're going to get a little like dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until they're really not as no as noticeable. I think that was a concern for a while for astrophotographers is that this deployment of a thousand satellites into the sky was going to uh, disrupt long exposure night photography significantly because we're going to have all these different extra points of light that we're going to ruin all of this this data gathering that we do for astronomy or for personal astrophotography. I hope, and my understanding is, they're supposed to be painted in this black matte paint like they did with the Iridium satellites more recently, and that's supposed to I guess affect the the flares that we get those iridium burns that we would see where a satellite is a color you know is is visible but then all of a sudden catches the glare of the sun and then uh, shimmers for you know five or ten seconds really bright brighter than almost anything in the sky and then fades again it's called an iridium burn for the iridium satellites that were put up uh, as like uh, satellite communication I think it's like how we get NBC or something you know uh, <laughs> or it's how we get some of those. Some of those satellite communications that we have now, almost everything, you know, uh, it goes through uh, this uh, satellite communications network that was launched, I think, back in the 60s, the Iridium network. And then a lot of that was replaced in the last 10 years, maybe, with uh, new items. And then I think now they're launching, you know, launching all these SpaceX items. But yeah, it's cool. If you get a chance to see them, you can probably, I think you can look up online, uh, like how to spot the, the SpaceX. Um, Starlink satellites that have been launched and uh, they're, they're on a pretty specific timing and they're only in like a certain part of the world at any given time and I think it takes a while for them to get to your part of the world if they're not there right now so um, yeah I think you can check it out and uh, you can find like uh, one of the sightings or one of the times that you're going to have a sighting in your area but it's pretty cool yeah you can find it and uh, see some satellites cruising by hopefully as the summer kind of rolls on a little bit more here in Corvallis maybe I'd mentioned it before it has been raining. June. Oh, yeah. I'm in. So I think I'm going to wrap it up there for this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Thank you very much for checking it out today. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com for more information about me or my photographs or some of the photo ebooks I put together or, I don't know, whatever other stuff. So hopefully, uh, yeah, we get to talk again soon. I think there's a couple, a couple topics I didn't get to on this one. I'll, I'll get back to uh, some of those logic control things I want to talk about. And I want to kind of get into a deeper dive on that stuff next time. I'm, I'm just getting into working with this, uh, this controller with the software that runs controls in Lightroom with it. And I'm just really getting used to it where you can kind of use this mixing board to mix and match different colors in Lightroom. So I'm looking to, to try and, and get into that more and then uh, maybe make some some stuff around it but i'll definitely get into that in a deeper dive next time on the podcast but thanks a lot for checking this one out I'll talk to you guys later bye